Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 37, and we have a fantastic episode for you this week. We have an absolute ton of stuff to get into. Of course, we'll get you caught up on the PGA Tour and some standings updates in the NHL, NBA, and MLB, but we have officially reached one of my favorite sporting events throughout the entire year, and that is the NFL Draft. Uh, We haven't really discussed it a whole lot, so we're going to be discussing it in length at this episode. We'll go over the top prospects at each position, and uh, we'll do a miniature mock draft as well. So without wasting any more time, we'll start off like we usually do in the PGA Tour. This past weekend's tournament was the RBC Heritage. That was held at the Harbortown Golf Links in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. It's a par 71, distance was 7,121 yards. And last year, this event was one of the first few events to take place after the COVID pause on the PGA Tour. After the restart, this was one of the first few events to take place. And this year, we had a pretty good field. A lot of big-name players in this field, which is surprising considering the Masters was the week before. And we don't usually see a great field the week after a major championship. But the course itself was amazing. Um, Hilton, uh, Hilton Head Island is just a, it's a beautiful city, beautiful town. And the weather cooperated Uh, on the east coast this weekend but in the end the golf itself it was just not a competitive tournament 47 year old Stuart Sink just ran away with this tournament from the opening round and he ended up winning with a score of 19 under par and Sink just came out guns blazing with a pair of 8 under 63s put him at 16 under through two rounds which set the 36 hole course record that was previously at 13 under par uh, which was held by Phil Mickelson and Jack Nicholas. So Stuart Sink only went three under uh, over the course of the weekend, but he really did not need to be any better than that because he was so far ahead after the first two rounds. And Stuart Sink's victory this past week was his second on tour this season, which ties Bryson DeChambeau for the most so far this year. But his previous victory... Uh, this year was the Safeway Open. And prior to that victory earlier this year, Stuart Sink had gone 4,074 days between wins, with his last win coming at the 2009 Open Championship. So almost 11 years pass, he wins the Safeway Open this year, and 217 days passed between his Safeway Open victory and his victory here at Harbortown this past week, so he definitely uh, closed that gap. But we had a two-way tie for second place at 15 under par, which was four shots back of Stewart Sink. 
It was Harold Varner III and Emiliano Grillo. Now, HV3, he played good golf all weekend. His worst round was a 2-under 69, and he also had a pair of 5-under 66s mixed in there in the opening and the final rounds to get him near the top of the leaderboard. Now, with Emiliano Grillo, he had a pair of 3-under 68s on Thursday and Sunday, opening round and final round. But he, what really got his name near the top of the leaderboard was Friday's round of 64. Uh, shot 7-under Friday to really kind of put himself on the map. Now, we had a three-way tie for fourth place at 13-under par, which was two shots back of Varner and Grillo and six shots back of Sink. And those three uh, that were 13-under were Maverick McNeely, Corey Connors, and Matthew Fitzpatrick. Now, Maverick McNeely, he shot even par in Thursday's opening round, but he had a pair of 4-under 67s to go with a 5-under 66, which got him right up near the top of the board. Now, Corey Connors, that dude's been playing outstanding golf as of late. It just seems as though the past month, every time you look at the leaderboard, his name is near the top. And he was actually 11-under par after his first two rounds. He went out and fired a 7-under 64 on Friday to put him at 11-under heading into the weekend. Well, Saturday, he shot a 1-over 72, kind of drop him down a tad, but he followed it up with a 3-under 68 to get back into the top five on Sunday. Matthew Fitzpatrick, he shot even par on Thursday and then answered that with a 7-under 64 on Friday. Over the weekend, he shot a pair of 3-under 68s to solidly finish inside that top five. But let's check out Rick's picks to click from the RBC Heritage. The first one I gave you was Abraham Answer. He had five top 25s so far this year coming into this thing. He was T26 at the Masters the week before, and he was the runner-up here at Harbortown last year. So I liked for him to be in contention, and he actually was. Uh, heading into the weekend, he was at seven under par, through two rounds, which was inside the top five. But over the weekend, he was only able to shoot two under to bring his score to nine under for the tournament, which was tied for 18th. So he finished inside that top 25. So he did click for me, um, but he was T18. My second pick to click was Will Zalatoris. And Zalatoris had that fantastic runner-up finish at the Masters the week before. The kid is 24 years old. He does not even have his PGA Tour card yet. But that inexperience has not mattered because he has shown over and over again that he is an elite player uh, in pro golf. Now, he also was 7-under heading into the weekend uh, inside that top five. But he shot even par on Saturday and then a 2-over 73 on Sunday to just uh, free fall down the leaderboard. So Zalatoris ended up finishing at 5-under for the tournament, which was tied for 42nd. So I missed on the Zalatoris pick. My final pick to click from the RBC Heritage was Tyrell Hatton. Hatton had uh, finished inside the top 20 in six of his eight events this year. And he was the co-54-hole leader here at Harbortown last year before finishing tied for third. So I liked for him to finish inside the top 20 or top 25, rather, and 
he was his scores were very strange this weekend. Hatton had a pair of two over seventy threes on Thursday and Saturday, and then had a pair of five under sixty sixes on Friday and Sunday. So in the first and third round he shot two over, and in the second and fourth round he shot five under. So that brought his his cumulative score for the tournament was six under par, which was tied for 39th. So uh, he finished outside that top 25, so he did not click for me. And if he could have just straightened out one of those other two rounds, uh, he he would have been probably pretty close to the top of the leaderboard. But very strange uh, tournament for Tyrell Hatton. So I went one for three on my picks to click for the RBC Heritage. But this weekend, the PGA Tour heads over to New Orleans, Louisiana, or the suburb of Avondale, for the Zurich Classic of New Orleans, which is held at TPC Louisiana in Avondale. It's a par 72 course, distance 7,425 yards. And this is a very interesting tournament. It's not a typical golf tournament like we are used to, to watching week in and week out. This tournament's actually going to be played in a team format. And we have a pretty good field of players with uh, several of the top-ranked guys taking part in this. Uh, One guy, uh, Seamus Power from Ireland, he had to withdraw due to a positive COVID test. Um, So his spot was replaced. But the way that this team format works, so rounds one, uh, the field is going, well, let me back up. The field is going to consist of 80 two-man teams. So 160 total golfers, 80 teams. And following the conclusion of the second round, there's going to be a cut and the low 35 teams and the ties for 35th at the end of Friday will make the cut. And the team members uh, are going to split their total earnings between each other. So the way this is going to work, you have 80 two-man teams, Rounds one and three are going to be four ball, best ball format. And rounds two and four are going to be foursomes, alternate shot format. So for the first and third round, four ball play, the players on each team are going to play their own ball throughout the entirety of the round with the best score on each hole recorded. So the teams are going to score the lower of their two scores. So if one guy shoots a par, one guy shoots a birdie, the team's going to record a birdie. For rounds two and four, the foursomes, they're going to rotate tee shots. So one player is going to hit a tee shot on all the odd-numbered holes, and the other player on the team is going to hit a tee shot on the even-numbered holes, and they're going to alternate shots on each of the holes. So the total number of strokes taken on each hole will result in their score for that hole. So it's going to be very interesting. A pretty cool thing to watch. Uh, definitely gives a different style of golf. It's more of a, it's like a kind of a scramble, I guess you could say, in a way. So my picks to click for this week are a little different. Obviously, they're they're teams instead of players individually. So uh, Rick's picks to click for the Zurich Classic of New Orleans. It's Rick's teams to to click this week. The first one I'm going to give you uh, is Patrick Cantlay and Xander Shoffley. Cantlay is ranked number 10 in the world. Shoffley is ranked number 5. Both top 10 golfers in the world. This is by far the best team on paper. 
but these two guys have great chemistry together because they played all four team sessions together in the 2019 President's Cup, and they're both going to suit up for Team USA here at Whistling Straits this fall. And not to mention, Shoffley's coming off a, a T3 at the Masters, um, and he probably could have won the Masters without that triple bogey on 16, but that team's going to compete this weekend. You can definitely count on that. My second team to click this weekend is Mark Leishman and Cameron Smith. Uh, Leishman's ranked number 37 in the world. Cameron Smith is ranked number 25 in the world. Cam Smith has actually won here at the Zurich before, and he's coming off of back-to-back top 10 individual performances at Harbortown and Augusta. Now, keep in mind, last week at Harbortown, he actually shot a 9-under 62 opening round on Thursday, which paced the field uh, in that opening round. So Cam Smith's coming in uh, just as hot as anybody else. And Mark Leishman also finished tied for fifth at the Masters a couple weeks ago. So he's not playing too bad himself. Both of them are Australians, so they'll have the chemistry of playing together. They've played together on the President's Cup uh, uh, world team as well. Uh, So they're going to enjoy playing together. I think the way that both of those guys have been playing, I would look for them to compete. And my final team to click for the Zurich Classic of New Orleans is the team of Colin Morikawa and Matthew Wolf. Colin Morikawa is ranked number four in the world. Matthew Wolf is ranked number 26 in the world. And Morikawa is coming off a T7 at Harbortown after he was in the final pairing on Sunday. And he also has a recent victory at the World Golf Championship at the concession several weeks back. And Matthew Wolf has done the opposite. He has struggled a lot lately. He withdrew from that World Golf Championship at the concession, uh, finished tied for 28th at the World Golf Championship Dell Technologies match play, and he actually had a DQ from the Masters. He was disqualified from the Masters for signing the wrong scorecard at the end of his round. Uh, Not sure how that happens as a professional. However, it did happen. So he was DQ'd from the Masters, just uh, hasn't really played very well this year. He did finish, uh, you know, runner-up in the U.S. Open, uh, top five in the PGA Championship. So he's he's capable of playing good golf in big tournaments. Uh, this is not a big tournament, so his stress level should not be as high. And he's playing alongside one of the top-ranked players in the world in Colin Morikawa. So that should allow him to play a little more freely. But it's going to be a very interesting tournament. I'm definitely looking forward to, to watching that this weekend. It's just a little different flavor of golf instead of the regular uh, tournaments that we see every other week. But we'll move on to our standings update portion of the podcast, and we'll start off in Major League Baseball. Go National League first. In the NL East, I've been saying this all off season, and I'm going to continue to say it because it's proving to be correct so far uh, three weeks into the season. But the NL East is the most competitive division in baseball. Uh, From top to bottom, the whole division is only separated by one game currently. The Philadelphia Phillies are 9-9. The New York Mets are 7-7. And And this past week, Jacob deGrom pitched. He, of course, is their ace, Cy Young winner, and they just don't score any runs for him. Uh, He had a game this week where he had nine consecutive strikeouts, which was one shy of the Major League Baseball record of 10 strikeouts in a row. 
But again, they just it seems as though they're offensively inept whenever he pitches. The Atlanta Braves are 8 and 10, Miami Marlins are 8 and 10, and the Washington Nationals are 7 and 9, just one game back of Philadelphia for the division lead at the moment. In the NL Central, the Milwaukee Brewers are 11 and 7, Chicago Cubs 9 and 9. The Cubs offense finally caught fire. They uh, were looking pretty pitiful to start the year, but they have finally uh, come out of their shell. Cincinnati Reds nine and nine, Pittsburgh Pirates nine and ten, St. Louis Cardinals eight and ten, and the National League West, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Uh, they are just on a roll. They look like they just cannot be beaten. Um, they're in a big series currently at the moment as we record this with the San Diego Padres, but with the LA Dodgers, Cody Bellinger. He's been out since April 5th from what they originally diagnosed as a bruised calf. But it was discovered this past week that Bellinger actually has a hairline fracture in his left fibula. So manager Dave Roberts has come out and said that there's no timetable for Bellinger's return. But let's be honest, the Dodgers are so good and they're rolling right now that Bellinger can take his sweet time in coming back. There's no rush. They just have depth on depth, those Dodgers. So they're, they're at 14-5. and five. Two games up on San Francisco. The Giants are 12 and 7. San Diego Padres are 11 and 10. Arizona Diamondbacks 9 and 10. And then the worst team in baseball currently at the moment, the Colorado Rockies at 6 and 12. In the American League, the AL East, Boston Red Sox 12 and 8. Tampa Bay Rays 10 and 9. Baltimore Orioles 8 and 10. The Toronto Blue Jays, 8-10. And, and the New York Yankees in the cellar of the AL East right now at 7-11. They are officially off to their worst start as a franchise since the 1997 season. Just not what you want to see if you're a Yankees fan. In the American League Central, Kansas City Royals, 10-7. Chicago White Sox, 9-9. Nine nine, Cleveland Indians, 8-9. Detroit Tigers 7 and 12 and right there with the Rockies in the bottom of the league the Minnesota Twins at 6 and 11 they've lost 4 in a row now in the American League West the Oakland A's they started the season 0 and 6 but they have won 11 games in a row to be at 12 and 7 currently tied with the Seattle Mariners at 12 and 7 for the AL West lead at the moment the A's are the hottest team in baseball, and the way that those guys are playing, man, I kind of want to see how long this streak takes them. They're going to lose at some point, but they are playing some really good baseball. They had a great comeback uh, a couple nights ago. But, uh, again, Seattle Mariners 12-7 and right there with them. The Los Angeles Angels are 9-8. and Texas Rangers 9-10, and and the Houston Astros at 8-10. and They're only 2-8 and in their last 10, so... They're off to a rough start as well. But we'll move over to the National Hockey League and do a standings update there. We'll start off in the Honda West Division. The Honda West Division is home of two of the best teams in the entire league, the Vegas Golden Knights. They're 33-11-2. They've won eight in a row, nine out of their last ten. They were the first team to officially clinch a playoff spot for this uh, this upcoming playoffs. The Colorado Avalanche, 
31, 9, and 4. They've won five in a row. They've also won nine out of their last 10. They have become the second team to officially clinch a playoff spot this year. Minnesota Wild are 29, 13, and 3. They've also won five in a row. They're peaking at the right time. Arizona Coyotes are 20, 22, and 5. St. Louis Blues, 19, 19, and 6. San Jose Sharks, 18, 23, and 5. Los Angeles Kings, 17, 20, and 6. And the Anaheim Ducks, 14, 26, and 7. Losers of three in a row. In the Discover Central Division, Carolina Hurricanes, 31, 10, and 5. Florida Panthers, 30, 13, and 5. They uh, called up rookie goalie Spencer Knight. First career NHL start, made 33 of 34 uh, saves to uh, get the victory there. He's looking really good, real promising future there. Tampa Bay Lightning, 31, 14, and 2. Nashville Predators, uh, they had won uh, quite a few games uh, to get up to the fourth spot. They're 25, 21, and 2. And the Dallas Stars, they are 19, 15, and 12. They went on a four-game winning streak and have won six out of their last ten. They're they're coming into form, still dealing with some injuries, but they are just two points back of Nashville for that fourth playoff spot. The Chicago Blackhawks are 22, 20, and 5. Detroit Red Wings, 17, 25, and 7. And the Columbus Blue Jackets, they've lost five in a row. They're 15, 25, and 9. In the Mass Mutual East Division, Washington Capitals, 30, 13, and 4. Pittsburgh Penguins, 30, 14, and 3. New York Islanders, 29, 13, and 5. Boston Bruins, 27, 12, and 6. They've won six in a row, eight out of their last 10. New York Rangers, 23, 18, and 6. Philadelphia Flyers, 21, 18, and 7. The New Jersey Devils, my goodness, they're 14, 26, and 6. They've lost eight games in a row. And then the Buffalo Sabres, they're just still rolling along at 12, 28, and 7. In the Scotia North Division, the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, 29, 13, and 5. They had uh, lost uh, five games in a row before finally winning. The Winnipeg Jets, 27, 16, and 3. Edmonton Oilers, 27, 16, and 2. Montreal Canadiens, 20, 15, and 9. Those four teams have been that in that same order for the last month, and uh, that'll probably be how that season uh, ends up for that division because uh, Calgary Flames are eight points back of the Canadians at 19, 23, and 3. Vancouver Canucks, they finally resumed play after a three-week hiatus from a COVID outbreak. They actually won their first game, uh, but they're 18, 19, and 3. And then the Ottawa Senators are uh, right behind Vancouver Canucks in points at 17, 26, and 4. They've won three games in a row although Vancouver has played the fewest games in the entire NHL. But we are getting very close to the NHL playoffs. Um, Two teams have already clinched playoff spots, both in the West Division, and uh, it's going to be an exciting finish here. Most teams have um, roughly 10 to 12 games, 10 to 14 games, with the exception of the Canucks. So we're going to be, on next week's episode, we'll have a pretty good idea 
of what the playoff picture is going to look like. But we'll move over to the NBA, and we'll do a standings update there. We'll start off in the Eastern Conference. The Philadelphia 76ers uh, are in first at 39-20, and 20, even though they've lost three in a row after beating Brooklyn, who is also 39-20, and 20, same record. Now, Brooklyn got some pretty grim news uh, in, the, in the word that James Harden, he's been dealing with a hamstring injury, so he's missed uh, about a week, week and a half. Well, they just pretty much ruled Harden out for the rest of the regular season because he re-aggravated the hamstring injury while uh, rehabbing. So Harden will be back for the playoffs, but uh, he will not play probably another game in the rest of the regular season. And there's only about uh, about 18 games left or so in basketball. Uh, Milwaukee Bucks are 36 and 22. The New York Knicks, they have won eight games in a row. They're 33 and 27. And they are just rolling. Julius Randle is just continuing to prove why he was an all-star selection. The dude is just going bonkers every night. The Atlanta Hawks are 32 and 27. Boston Celtics are also 32 and 27. And those are your top six. Uh, now, remember, the NBA is going to do a play-in tournament for the seeds 7 through 10 in each conference to determine those final two playoff spots. The top six get in. The bottom four, uh, 7 through 10, will have a play-in tournament. So the seventh seed in the East is the Miami Heat currently at 31-28. and 28. They've won three in a row. Charlotte Hornets are 28-30. and 30. And Miles Bridges just keeps throwing down massive slam dunks. Week after week, night after night, week after week, you keep seeing these tomahawk slams right in the face of the defender. Had another one here on uh, Thursday night. The Indiana Pacers are twenty-seven and thirty-one. The tenth seed currently are the Washington Wizards at twenty-five and thirty-three, and they've won six games in a row. The Chicago Bulls are twenty-five and thirty-four. Toronto Raptors are also twenty-five and thirty-four. They're riding a four-game win streak. Cleveland Cavaliers 21 and 37, Orlando Magic 18 and 41. They've lost four in a row. The Detroit Pistons 18 and 42. Now in the Western Conference, the Utah Jazz 44 and 15, Phoenix Suns 42 and 17. They're getting close to catching Utah. The Los Angeles Clippers 42 and 19. They've won three games in a row. The Denver Nuggets. 38 and 20, they've won four in a row. Los Angeles Lakers, 35 and 24, they've lost two in a row. Anthony Davis finally returned to the court on Thursday night against the Mavericks, finished with only four points, four rebounds, and limited minutes. Uh, did not look himself, obviously, first game back after 67 days off. But the Lakers uh, are continuing to slide down those standings. The Portland Trailblazers currently hold the sixth spot at 32 and 26. They even having lost 3 games in a row. Now the Dallas Mavericks, they're the 7th seed, the first team in that that play-in tournament. They're 32 and 26, same record as the Trailblazers. They've won 2 in a row. Big win on Thursday night against the uh, Lakers and Anthony Davis's return. The Memphis Grizzlies are 29 and 28. San Antonio Spurs 29 and 29. The Golden State Warriors 29 and 30. And they have been playing really well. 
uh, won six out of their last ten. And Steph Curry just had those guys on a roll. He has caught fire. Uh, He had 11 straight games with more than 30 points, which is the longest streak by uh, a player 33 or older, which passed Kobe Bryant. And during that 11-game stretch of more than 30 points per game, uh, Steph Curry averaged 7.1 three-pointers made per game in that stretch, uh, which is just outrageous. That guy can shoot the lights out. He is the best shooter probably in NBA history. But the Warriors are 29-30. and 30. The New Orleans Pelicans, 26-33. and 33. Sacramento Kings, 24-35. and 35. The Oklahoma City Thunder, 20-39. and 39, And they've lost 12 in a row. Now, the Minnesota Timberwolves, they have finally moved out of last place in the West. They're 16-44. and 44, But they have officially, mathematically been eliminated from playoff contention. Sorry, T-Wolves fans, uh, in case you were hopeful that they would make the playoffs. Last place in the Western Conference, the Houston Rockets. They've only won twice in their last 10 games. They're 15-44, and 44, and they too have also been eliminated from playoff contention. But like I said, the NBA, most teams have uh, about 18 or so games left in their regular season. So uh, we're starting to get, uh, get a clear picture of who the top three or four seeds in each conference are going to be. But over the next couple weeks, we'll have a really good idea of how that playoff picture is going to uh, shape out, especially with that play-in tournament, with that uh, top six getting in and the seven through ten having a play-in tournament. So that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on. And uh, there's been some complaints. A lot of players have been getting injured, and had, we've had you know NBA's had a lot of complaints about uh, you know the shortened season and the compressed schedule and it having an effect and a lot of players are getting days off just for rest so they don't get hurt even though there have been a lot of injuries this year but that's just it is what it is the NBA is trying to get a season in and uh, they've almost done that it's going to be quite the race to the finish here these last uh, few weeks last month or so in the NBA season but we'll move on to the National Football League and the NFL draft is finally here And like I said in the intro, it is one of my favorite sporting events throughout the entire year. Uh, I follow it very closely. Of course, I watch college football. I know who all the top prospects are. I listen to uh, ESPN draft analyst Todd McShay and Mel Kuyper Jr. They have a podcast. I listen to that. So I follow the NFL draft quite a bit, just something I really am interested in. So the NFL draft is, is this week. It starts uh, Thursday and goes through Saturday. So the first round of the draft is going to be Thursday, April 29th. The second and third rounds of the draft will be Friday, April 30th. And the fourth through the seventh rounds will be Saturday, May 1st. So they split it up into a three-day event. Uh, And as we've mentioned on past couple episodes, the city of Cleveland, Ohio, is going to be the host of the NFL draft this year. And there will be a limited number of fans in attendance along with some of the top prospects that'll be drafted and then of course some team personnel will also be on site and on the uh, behind the scenes the uh, the war rooms will take place again this year last year of course the NFL draft was completely virtual and all the coaches and GMs and owners had to get on a zoom call from their their houses or wherever but 
this year they all get to meet at the team facility in the war room so that will be exciting for them just another sign that uh, things are getting back to normal but before we get started what I want to do is I want to go over the top five prospects at each position uh, my my rankings basically my version of of the rankings the top five at each position and then I'll do a little miniature mock draft we'll go over the top 10 picks and how I think those are going to go down but before we get started I came across this graphic and it's courtesy of Fox Sports and it was definitely I thought it was very interesting uh, there are only four schools who have had a player picked in every NFL draft since the common draft era began in 1967 those four schools are the University of Florida University of Southern California, University of Michigan, and Michigan State University. Now, Florida, USC, and Michigan are all top 20 college football programs. So I would have probably guessed those three uh, if, if I had multiple guesses at it. I, I would have, uh, those would have been picked a lot sooner than Michigan State. Now, I was very surprised to see Michigan State in that group, but uh, there you have it. Oh, those four schools have had a player picked in every single draft since 1967. So we'll see if they can keep that streak alive this year. Uh, Florida, USC, and Michigan obviously have a very strong chance of that. Not sure about Michigan State this year. But we'll get into my top five prospects at each position. We'll just do it by position group to make it easy. And we'll start off with the quarterbacks. The top-ranked quarterback in this draft is Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. Uh, he's 6'6", 213 pounds. He is a generational talent at the quarterback position. Uh, it's been said he's the best quarterback prospect since Andrew Luck in 2012, and uh, I would certainly agree with that. Um, he's got all the physical tools. He's got the arm strength, the height, the athleticism to make plays. And all you had to do was watch Clemson these last three years. Uh, they were in and around the national title game every year. Trevor Lawrence won the national title as a freshman leading that team. So um, he will be a Jacksonville Jaguar on Thursday. Second-ranked quarterback is Zach Wilson from BYU. And his draft stock uh, has really taken off in these last couple months. Um, he's 6'3", 214 pounds. And... Like Lawrence, he did not work out at his pro day. He just opted to throw, and he put on a show. Uh, he was throwing 50, 60-yard bombs that were that were dropping in uh, right in the hands of the receiver while he was on the run. Uh, he's very athletic. He's probably a little faster than Trevor Lawrence, but uh, he definitely has a cannon of an arm, and um, he had about a 73% completion percentage this year, so... Uh, he is pretty accurate with the football. My third-ranked quarterback is Justin Fields from Ohio State. He's 6'3", 228, and he ran a 4'4", 40-yard dash at his pro day. Just electric speed for a quarterback of his size. And he might just be the, the I guess, the best athlete out of the top five quarterbacks here, just uh, based on his size and speed and arm strength because he can also zip the ball he had two pro days uh, multiple teams were in attendance for each but um, 
some news came out this week that he's been uh, he's been diagnosed with some form of epilepsy. Uh, this isn't a recent diagnosis. It's just something that he's been dealing with, but it does not affect him when he plays. And I guess it's kind of a, a minor case, but um, I don't think that will affect his draft stock. He's still a very good athlete, very good quarterback. And if he lands in the right system, look out. The fourth-ranked quarterback is Trey Lance from North Dakota State. He's 6'4", 226. He only has 17 career starts, and 16 of those came the year before last, and he only made one start this year in kind of a showcase game against, I think it was Alabama State maybe, Alabama A&M, one of those. It's one North Dakota State's 1AA, so it's not Division I, uh, not a power five school. Um, he just, the competition he played uh, was not what you would expect from a true top 10 quarterback. Um, but he has very raw talent. Uh, he needs to be uh, put in a system where he can develop and uh, for a year or two before being thrown in as the starter. But he is very gifted. He's tall. He's athletic. He's got a good arm. And like I said, he's made 17 career starts, which the fewest uh, starts by a first-round quarterback uh, since the year 2002, Mitchell Trubisky, 13, Dwayne Haskins, 14, Mark Sanchez, 16, Kyler Murray, 17, and Ryan Tannehill, 19 starts. So Trey Lance fits right in there with Kyler Murray as having uh, only 17 career starts uh, while being a first-round quarterback because I would assume that Trey Lance will be gone inside the top 10. He certainly will be a first-round selection. But my fifth-ranked quarterback is Mac Jones from Alabama. He's 6'3", 214. He also has only made 17 career starts. Now, the difference between Mac Jones and Trey Lance is 17 career starts is that Mac Jones played all of his games this year. Um, I think he played out of those 17 career starts. I think uh, 13 of them were this year. So um, he's he's a decent size quarterback. He's very accurate. He finished uh, with a 78 percent completion percentage this year. And his his 17 starts in college were, of course, Division One in the SEC against the best of the best competition. So that's why. Uh, I'm not as concerned about Mac Jones' 17 starts as I am about Trey Lance's 17 starts. Uh, Mac Jones is a little more polished of a quarterback than Trey Lance. But Mac Jones is not, uh, I guess the the only thing you can say bad about Mac Jones is that he's not as athletic as those other four. Uh, he ran a 4.7940, which um, is, is not great. So his mobility is not as good as any of the uh, other quarterbacks that we've talked about. So... Um, you know, I, I would, Mac Jones is certainly going to be a first round. All five of those quarterbacks will be a first round pick. They actually all have potential to go inside the top 10, all five of them, but, uh, for sure they'll all be first round picks, but, uh, we'll move on to the running backs and my top ranked running back is Najee Harris from Alabama. He's 6'2", 230 pounds, uh, dude's an athletic freak. If you watched the college football playoffs this year, you saw when they played Notre Dame, he hurdled the defender and um, 
he ran it in for, you know, like a 60 or 70 yard touchdown after he did that or what, you know, but he's, he's just a fantastic athlete. He was got a lot more physical this year as a runner. He wasn't really showing his physicality his first couple years at Alabama, but this year he became a very, very physical running back, which in turn uh, really helped his draft stock because of his, his size that he was able to put on as well. But my second ranked running back is Travis Etienne from Clemson. He's 5'10", 205 pounds. He's one of those rare four-year guys. He stuck around for his senior year. He could have entered the draft last year. Probably should have. I don't know that this year boosted his draft stock any. And, of course, Clemson fell short of the national title, so it was kind of the goal that he had wanted to accomplish that he didn't get to. So, uh, But I don't know that he really helped his draft stock. He's a great running back. He's super quick. He's good at catching passes out of the backfield. Kind of an all-purpose back. Uh, with good speed. So I think uh, it'll be between ETN and Najee Harris to see which one goes first or which one goes second. But those will be the top two running backs off the board. My third ranked running back is Chuba Hubbard from Oklahoma State. And he's six feet, 207 pounds. He's a blazer, man. He ran a 4-4-40. He put up 20 reps on the bench at his pro day. He also had a 36-inch vertical. So He's super athletic. He's got a big lower half. He led the nation in rushing in 2019. And he uh, started this season, this past season, played a couple games, and then ended up opting out of the rest of the season for COVID. So uh, he didn't get a full season in this year, but uh, he is right up there with ETN and Harris in terms of college production. And I think Hubbard will be the third running back taken. Now, the running back position has been uh, devalued over the last several years. Not to say that that uh, makes any of these guys any less valuable, but I think because of that, Hubbard probably won't get picked until the third round at the earliest. So I think Harris and Etienne are borderline first-round picks, uh, possibly second-round picks. I think Harris will be in the first round. Etienne will probably be in the second round. And then I think Hubbard... Uh, might get drafted in the third round. But my fourth rated running back is Ramondre Stevenson from Oklahoma. This dude is a machine. He's a bowling ball. He's six feet, 246 pounds. To put it in perspective, he's three inches shorter than Derrick Henry, but he's eight pounds heavier than Derrick Henry. So he, uh, when he gets going at his top end speed, and he's coming downhill, look out, because he is tough to deal with. You get him inside the five-yard line, and you are not bringing him down. He is just a large running back with very deceptive speed, and uh, I think he's going to be a great goal line asset to any team that uh, that takes him. He kind of got buried on the depth chart at Oklahoma and really kind of came into his year uh, or came into his own this year, and he was buried on the depth chart because of my fifth-ranked running back, Trey Sermon. Now, Trey Sermon played his past year at Ohio State. He transferred to Ohio State this year, but he had been at Oklahoma prior to that. Now, Sermon is 6'1", 215 pounds, and if you watched the last few games of the year for Ohio State, the Big Ten Championship game, he had over 300 yards rushing and then followed that up with another couple solid performances uh, in the semifinal game, 
against Clemson in the national title game as well. So the dude is, he was highly productive uh, at the end of the year. And I think he's, uh, he's kind of another all purpose back with good size, good hands out of the backfield as well. So uh, I have him ranked fifth. But we'll move on to the wide receiver position. And just like last year, we had a ton of wide receivers go in the first round. I think we could see that exact same thing uh, unfold here this year. My top-ranked wide receiver is Devontae Smith from Alabama. Uh, He just won the Heisman Trophy after the best statistical college football season we've ever seen from a wide receiver in terms of yards and touchdowns and just overall elite production. Now, the only knock on Devontae Smith is his size. He just measured in the other day at 6 feet, 166 pounds. So he's super skinny, but he's he's so great off of breaking off his routes that he is basically uncoverable. Uh, if you watched him week in and week out in the SEC this past season against some pretty elite-level cornerbacks, he just made them all look silly. And he's always open. He's always catching the ball. Uh, this guy stayed after every practice and caught 100 passes out of a, a, a throwing machine just to get extra reps in. And ultimately, that's why he won the Heisman Trophy, because he puts in extra work and he had the production that he did. Uh, the kid's super, super down to earth, uh, ready to work at all costs. And I don't care about his lack of size. Uh, he's not built like Julio Jones but he plays just as big as Julio Jones did at Alabama. And so I like Devontae Smith a lot because if you can't cover him, he's going to be open, and as sure-handed as he is, he will catch the football. But my second-ranked wide receiver is Jamar Chase from LSU. Now, Chase is 6 feet, 208 pounds. He ran a 4-3-40, 41-inch vertical, and that is spectacular. Jamar Chase is as good at contested catches as anybody else in this draft. Probably the best contested catch uh, wide receiver in this draft. So he'll go up and get it. There's a solid chance that he will be drafted before Devontae Smith. I think the earliest Jamar Chase could go would be fifth to Cincinnati. Uh, But I do believe uh, that Smith and Chase are are 1A and 1B. Uh, It's kind of your preference. Do you want the... You want the guy that's a little heavier that can go up and get it, or do you want the uh, the skinnier guy that's more elusive and a better route runner and more sure-handed? And it's it's really a take your pick. My third ranked wide receiver is Jalen Waddle from Alabama. He's 5'10, 182 pounds, and he is, he's got speed you can see. Uh, he's also an elite kick returner, punt returner. He got hurt. He played a few games this season, then got hurt and missed the rest of the year until he uh, limped onto the field in the national championship game. But for the few games that he was healthy this year, Jalen Waddle, he had 13 fewer catches than Devontae Smith, but 74 more receiving yards than Devontae Smith in the three or four games that they both played together this year at Alabama. So you can see the production is there even when he's got an elite receiver alongside him. So uh, I think Jalen Waddle's got a very strong chance to be the third wide receiver taken in the top 10. I certainly don't see Waddle slipping past uh, the Eagles at pick 12. So I think um, 
I think that will be about as low as he will go. My fourth-ranked wide receiver is Kadarius Toney from Florida. Toney's only 5'11", 193. He's a little little bigger than Jalen Waddle. He's got 4'3", speed. The dude is uh, like a video game uh, juke move, man, waiting to happen. He's He'll stop on a dime. He's a track guy. Uh, he's got a 39-and-a-half-inch vertical. And, again, speed you can see. And uh, I think... Uh, you can get him in the slot. You can let him run out wide. You can do reverse uh, reverse plays, screen plays. Uh, the dude you can use in a variety of different ways. I think he'll be at the tail end of the first round, uh, but he certainly will uh, be an asset uh, to any team that takes him. Now, my fifth-ranked wide receiver is Rashad Bateman from Minnesota. Uh, he's 6'2", 200 pounds. And he had a fantastic uh, 2019 season with the the Golden Gophers. Uh, Didn't have quite the production uh, this past year in 2020, but uh, he still is great at contested catches. He's big, he's physical, and if you're looking for a solid red zone target, I think Rashad Bateman uh, is your man for that. So... Uh, that'll round out the wide receivers. Now, my top five tight ends. There's really only one you need to know of, and that's Kyle Pitts from Florida. Uh, Kyle Pitts is 6'6", 240 pounds. He's got an 83-inch wingspan, which is the largest wingspan ever recorded by a pass catcher at a combine-slash-pro day. And to go along with that size, he ran a 4'4", he put up 22 reps on the bench and had a 33-and-a-half-inch vertical. The guy is an athletic specimen. He plays like a wide receiver. His catch radius is ridiculous, and he is a mismatch waiting to happen because he's he's too big and fast for your safeties and your linebackers. Yeah, you just It doesn't matter if you put a linebacker. He's taller than your linebacker. Uh, and he's bigger and faster than any corner or safety that you would put on him. So he is a mismatch waiting to happen. Uh, I will tell you in my mock draft, he is going inside the top 10. I do not think Kyle Pitts will fall outside of the sixth pick to Miami. I think that's about as low as as he's going to get. Everybody, all the experts and everything you read about Kyle Pitts is saying that he is a Hall of Fame tight end, basically a built-in Tony Gonzalez, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle uh, from the get-go. So sign me up for that, whoever gets him. Second-ranked tight end is Pat Firemuth out of Penn State. He's 6'5", 260. Uh, He's a better blocker than Pitts is. Pitts isn't really a blocker. Um, Some other tight ends, Hunter Long from Boston College, 6'5", 253. Uh, Again, he's he's probably a better blocker. he can go up and get the ball as well. Uh, Brevin Jordan, number four from Miami. He's a little undersized for a tight end, 6'3", 247. Uh, but he had a 31-inch vertical with 4'6 speed. So uh, pretty athletic kid there. And then fifth-ranked tight end, Tommy Tremble from Notre Dame. He's 6'3", 241. So again, a little undersized. He put up 20, uh, 20 reps on the bench. 
to go along with 4.6 speed, and he had a 36.5-inch vertical. So, again, these guys are super athletic. That's kind of the new tight end, uh, the way that the league is going with these new tight ends uh, like Kittle and Kelsey. Uh, those guys are, are basically big wide receivers, uh, but not the tight end that we're used to see, uh, that we're used to seeing, uh, you know, in, in the old school NFL. But these guys, uh, they're all going to get drafted, and um, they're all super athletic. Top five offensive linemen. Number one, Penny Sewell from Oregon. Dude, 6'6", 330 pounds. 28-inch uh, vertical at that size. Ran a five-second 40. 30 reps on the bench. This guy's got huge hands. He's super strong. You're not getting by him. And uh, he's quick. I would expect Penny Sewell to be a top 10 pick. Um, we'll talk about him here in, in my mock draft. My second-ranked offensive lineman's Rashawn Slater from Northwestern. 6'4", 315. He can play inside. He can play outside. Uh, he can play guard or tackle. He projects well at both of those positions. I think he, again, will also be a top 10 pick. Third-ranked offensive lineman, Elijah Vera Tucker from USC. He's 6'4", 315. And he is another one of those guys that can play guard on the inside or outside as a tackle. I think he'll be a mid-first-round pick and uh, probably a steal for whoever gets him. Um, just based on the raw talent we have in this draft this year, he's at the position he plays, he's kind of getting uh, a mid-round grade, but he's still going to be a fantastic lineman. Uh, Christian Derisaw is next. Virginia Tech, 6'5", 314. Uh, he's, uh, he'll probably be the fourth lineman to go. He, he's more of a mid-to-late first-round projection. Um, my fifth-ranked offensive lineman, Tevin Jenkins from o uh, Oklahoma State. This dude, he's 6'5", 317, runs a 5-second 40, put up 36 reps on the bench, and had a 36-inch vertical. Somebody that size should not be able to jump that high. Uh, that's frightening. But, again, he projects as a more of a right tackle than a left, uh, but he is going to be a big, strong tackle in the league. And we'll flip over to the defensive line. Top defensive lineman, uh, Quiddy Pay from Michigan. 6'4", 272. He's twitchy. He's got a good first step. Uh, he can actually drop back into coverage if needed. Uh, but I think he'll probably be the first uh, edge rusher to come off the board. My second-ranked defensive lineman is Jalen Phillips from Miami. Phillips is 6'5", 266. He ran a 4'5", 40, put up 21 reps on the bench, and had a 36-inch vertical. He is a former number one overall recruit coming out of high school just a few years ago. He got hurt his freshman year at UCLA and transferred over to Miami, where he played this year and ended up with double-digit sacks. So health is going to be the key with Jalen Phillips. If he can stay healthy, he will probably end up being the best edge rusher from this draft but of course that is a big if my third ranked defensive lineman is Aziz Oljolari from Georgia he's 6'3 240 he's more of a, he's not your typical 4-3 uh, defensive end he's more of a 3-4 hybrid uh, edge rusher outside linebacker type but he has got fantastic speed uh, he's a tackling machine 
and uh, I think he is a mid-first-round talent. My fourth-rated defensive lineman is uh, the only defensive tackle I have ranked this high. It's uh, Christian Barmore from Alabama, 6'4", 3'10", and he ran a 4'9". And uh, he is uh, probably not as great against the run as you would expect of somebody that size, but he has good speed and can get uh, get after the quarterback, which is what you want uh, from your from your D tackle. But my fifth ranked defensive lineman is Joseph Osai from Texas. He again is more of a three four outside linebacker, uh, more so than a um, a. Uh, defensive end in a 4-3, but he does both. He's 6'4", 253. He had a 41-inch vertical at that size, and his motor is 100 miles an hour all the time. Uh, The dude does not quit. I watched uh, every Texas game this year. He just simply does not give up on any play, and I think he might slip to the second round, and that would be an absolute steal for Osai uh, because he is just a high-motor guy. Now, my linebackers, top-ranked linebackers, Micah Parsons from Penn State. This guy put on a show at his pro day. 6'3", 246, ran a 4'3", 940, 19 reps on the bench with a 34-inch vertical. He's by far the best linebacker in the draft. Could be a top-10 pick, probably will be a top-15 pick just because of how many offensive players are going to go. Second-ranked linebacker, Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa from Notre Dame. He's 6'1", 221, 36.5-inch vertical. So he's a little undersized for a linebacker, but he is super quick. Great cover linebacker from sideline to sideline. And uh, he also is a high-motor guy. Third-ranked linebacker is Zaven Collins from Tulsa. He's 6'4", 260 pounds, just a huge linebacker. He's got great speed for that size, and he can actually uh, hang out in coverage uh, he's he's deceptively quick for a guy that weighs as much as a defensive lineman. But uh, fourth-ranked linebacker is Jameen Davis from Kentucky. This guy is also an athletic freak. 6'4", 234. He ran a 4'4", and had a 42-inch vertical. Again, somebody that size should not be able to jump that high. Uh, he's another sideline-to-sideline linebacker. And uh, I think his stock has also been rising here in the last uh, month and a half. He's gone from a second-round pick to uh, quite possibly a a first-round pick. Uh, My fifth-ranked linebacker is Baron Browning from Ohio State. This dude, he's actually from the the Dallas-Fort Worth area, 6'3", 240. He ran a 4'5", and has a 40-inch vertical. So, again, just super athletic linebackers that we're seeing that can cover, they can rush, they can hit. And that's what you want uh, when you when you draft a linebacker high. Now, my uh, defensive backs, between cornerbacks and safeties, the cornerbacks, top-ranked corner is Patrick Sertan, the second, from Alabama. 6'2", 2'08", 4'4", speed. And I think he's the best all-around corner. Yeah, he's the most fundamentally sound. He's so smooth in everything he does. Of course, his dad played in the NFL. And uh, I like Sertan a lot uh, in this draft. Second-ranked corner is J.C. Horn from South Carolina. He's 6'1", 205. He has 4'3", speed with a 41.5-inch vertical. The thing about J.C. Horn, he's the best press man cover corner in this draft. He will play on you. He will 
He will get in your face. He's very handsy. Uh, his, the knock on him is he takes a lot of, of holding penalties, illegal contact penalties, but the kid can flat out cover uh, in man coverage. He's the son of uh, NFL wide receiver Joe Horn. Third-ranked cornerback is Caleb Farley from Virginia Tech. Uh, I, he's only third. Uh, Farley's 6'2", 207. He's only ranked number three on this list because he just had a back procedure done, and they're not sure uh, you know, what his timetable is to get 100% healthy. He should be healthy for OTAs and mini camps, but you don't know with, with the back issue. Uh, and also... He only played, he opted out this past year. He didn't play, and he only has played one season as a cornerback. He's a, uh, he used to be a wide receiver, and because he was a wide receiver, he has tremendous ball skills. He can go up and find the ball and snatch it. Um, he had two interceptions in his first career game ever as a corner, and uh, just shows you the ball skills that he's got. Fourth-ranked corner is Greg Newsom from Northwestern. Uh, he's 6'1", 190. He's got good size, good length, and he can play uh, on the outside, he can play inside in the slot. Nickel uh, is pretty versatile. My fifth-ranked corner is Asante Samuel Jr. He is the son of another pro. Uh, he's got 4'4 speed and 35-inch vertical at 5'10", 184 pounds. Safeties, we'll run through these real quick. Trevon Morig from TCU. He's 6'2", 202 pounds. Again, he's he'll be the first safety taken. He, he'll be in the first round. Richie Grant from Central Florida. He's a 4-4 speed, 34-and-a-half-inch vertical. Uh, the dude likes to hit, likes to get dirty. And uh, third-ranked safety is Javon Holland from Oregon. 6'1", 201 pounds. He's got 4-4 speed, 35-inch vertical. Uh, he's a ball hawk, man. He, he's got interceptions written all over him. Fourth-ranked safeties are Darius Washington from TCU. He's only 5'8", 178. And he ran a 4'6", which is not great for somebody that size. But he's got a 37-inch vertical. Uh, he's a little undersized, so I think his stock will probably slip him to the third or fourth round. But um, he, again, is uh, another ball hawk. And Andre Sisco from Syracuse is my fifth-ranked safety at 6 feet, 209 pounds. Now, we'll get into this. We're just going to do a 10-pick 10, 10 mock draft. I'm only going to do the top 10 picks in a little mock draft here just to kind of keep things moving along. The first pick in the draft belongs to the Jacksonville Jaguars, and uh, I'm predicting that they select Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback from Clemson. Generational talent, that's a no-brainer for Urban Meyer, the new head coach. The number two pick is the New York Jets. I think they're going to take Zach Wilson, quarterback from BYU. Uh, That seems to be the uh, consensus amongst everything that I've read. Uh, he's, I told you, he's super athletic, can throw on the run, and he will help rebuild that Jets franchise. Third overall pick belongs to the San Francisco 49ers via a trade. And I've read a lot of reports that say they're going to take Mac Jones from Alabama. But I've also read a report that says they bl- they're bluffing on that. I think they're going to take Justin Fields, the quarterback from Ohio State. I say that because Fields is the best athlete out of those top five quarterbacks. Uh, He's 6'3", 230 pounds, runs a 4'4", 40. San Francisco's offense with Kyle Shanahan is pretty much predicated on getting the run established. So it doesn't make sense, in my opinion, to take Mac Jones, who is the least athletic out of those five quarterbacks, 
uh, you would want the most athletic, the guy that can run the ball the best and do the RPOs uh, and run the ball effectively as opposed to a guy that doesn't run well. So I think the 49ers are going to end up with Fields. The fourth pick belongs to the Atlanta Falcons. This one, I think they're going to go Kyle Pitts, the tight end. Uh, You have Julio Jones. You have Calvin Ridley. Go ahead and throw Kyle Pitts out there. And you do not have a defense in the league that can handle those three guys on the field at the same time. Because Matt Ryan, it would be tempting to take a quarterback, uh, say Trey Lance, Mac Jones, Justin Fields, whoever falls to four. Uh, It would be tempting to take a quarterback in that spot to be the heir apparent to Matt Ryan. But I think you're still going to get at least two more years of uh, high-level production from Matt Ryan. So go ahead and go get the playmaker in pits. Fifth overall pick belongs to the Cincinnati Bengals. I think they're going to take the offensive tackle, Panay Sewell, from Oregon. Uh, Joe Burrow just coming off a torn ACL uh, this past season because he couldn't stay upright. So you need to do everything you can to project, uh, protect your franchise quarterback. Go get him a left tackle that's 330 pounds and moves uh, like he's uh, 275 pounds. Sixth overall pick is Jamar. Uh, was Miami? Miami Dolphins have the pick. I think they're going to take Jamar Chase from LSU, wide receiver. Uh, the dude we just talked about him a little while ago. Uh, he can go up and get it. Uh, they already got a. They signed Will Fuller in the offseason to be their burner. So you pair Jamar Chase with Will Fuller and Devontae Parker, and that offense uh, is very scary and a plethora of weapons for Tua Tagovailoa. The seventh overall pick belongs to the Detroit Lions. I think they're going to take Devontae Smith, wide receiver from Alabama. Detroit Lions, they might have the very worst wide receiving core in the entire league at the moment. Uh, Just uh, nobody there. They got rid of all their wide receivers, lost them in free agency. I don't see any way that they do not take an elite playmaker at the wide receiver position with that seventh pick. Give me Devontae Smith to the Lions. Eighth overall pick belongs to the Carolina Panthers. I think they're going to take Rashawn Slater, the offensive tackle from Northwestern. Um, I think that because they just traded for Sam Darnold to be their franchise quarterback moving forward. They have Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore on the outside to go along with Christian McCaffrey in the backfield. So they have offensive weapons. So if I was them, I would do what I can to help give Sam Darnold the protection he needs to find those weapons. So I think Slater, with his versatility at guard or tackle, will be the pick for the Panthers. Number nine, the pick belongs to the Denver Broncos. I think they're going to take Trey Lance, the quarterback from North Dakota State. Uh, They are in a division with Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, and Derek Carr. And they are rolling out Drew Locke as their starting quarterback. So they are very behind the eight ball in terms of quarterbacks in their own division. I think this is Locke's last year to prove something. So I think they take Trey Lance to uh, solidify that quarterback position and give them their true quarterback of the future if Drew Locke cannot get it together this season. The 10th overall pick belongs to my Dallas Cowboys. I think they're going to take Patrick Sertan the second, the corner, from Alabama. At least I hope they do. Uh, he's the best overall corner in this draft. Something tells me, though, that Sertan will be available at 10, but the Dallas Cowboys might end up picking J.C. Horn, the corner from South Carolina. 
I just have a feeling they're going to go with Horn over Sertan, but I am truly hoping that they take Sertan because I think Sertan is slightly better as an overall corner. Uh, but that's going to wrap up the NFL draft segment. That uh, that draft starts this week. I'm super pumped, as you can tell. So um, just be on the lookout for that. Like I said, round one Thursday, round two and three on Friday, and rounds four through seven on Saturday. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island, and that's where we do some quick news topics from various sports. And we'll start off in the National Hockey League. This past week, San Jose Sharks forward Patrick Marlowe set an all-time NHL record, and that record was uh, for all-time games played. And this past week, Patrick Marlowe skated in his 1,768th career game, which passed Hall of Fame legend Gordie Howe for the most games played in NHL history. And Patrick Marlowe, he's 41 years old, and he was the number two overall pick in the 1997 draft. He's played a majority of his career with the San Jose Sharks, which is the team that drafted him. But he's also played with the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Toronto Maple Leafs. And this record is even more incredible when you realize that Marlowe has more career NHL games played than the following franchises. Nashville Predators, uh, Atlanta Thrashers slash Winnipeg Jets, Columbus Blue Jackets, Minnesota Wild, and Vegas Golden Knights. So he's played in more games individually than five NHL franchises. And also, there's been a total of 863 skaters that have played in the NHL this season. And among them, 163 of them were not even born when Patrick Marlowe debuted in October of 1997. That's 18.9% of the league that was not born when Marlowe skated in his first NHL game. So Patrick Marlowe is a true Iron Man. And that is one hell of a career uh, either way. But the other NHL news is the fact that the NHL announced that they are planning to open the 2021-2022 season, uh, next season, of course, on October 12th of 2021, which is roughly a week later than what a typical 82-game regular season normally starts. So training camps would begin around September 22nd. So that is a great sign uh, for our return to normalcy is the fact that the NHL is basically going to be starting on time next year and getting a full schedule in. But we'll move over to the National Football League. A notable free agent signing, uh, wide receiver Marquise Goodwin. He, a longtime 49ers wide receiver, he has signed with the Chicago Bears. So that gives the Bears another offensive weapon to go with uh, Anthony Miller and uh, Tariq Cohen. And, you know, that that offense, they're slowly starting to build, get pieces around. We'll see what they do in the draft. Uh, They're going to need a quarterback at some point because Trubisky left for free agency and they had to sign Andy Dalton on a uh, temporary contract, basically, uh, as a to bridge the gap between now and and their future at the quarterback position. And speaking of quarterbacks, longtime NFL quarterback Alex Smith announced his retirement from the NFL this past week after 16 seasons. Now, Alex Smith was the uh, number one overall pick in the 2005 NFL Draft, and he was named the NFL's Comeback Player of the Year this past season uh, after a devastating leg injury that he sustained in November of 2018, which uh, almost cost him his life and his leg. Uh, He had 17 surgeries, multiple infections, about two years of rehab, and all he did was return to the field this year 
and lead the Washington football team to the NFC East uh, division title and the playoffs. And in his career, Alex Smith was a three-time Pro Bowler, and he led the NFL in passer rating in 2017. So uh, he will not more than likely be going to the Hall of Fame, but either way, he had a fantastic career, and he will be most remembered for that uh, comeback into the league after that uh, severe injury. But some more NFL news. Last week I talked about uh, some legal situations brewing with uh, Los Angeles Rams defensive tackle Aaron Donald and how he was accused of assaulting a patron at a Pittsburgh-area nightclub. Well, this past week the attorney representing uh, DeVincent Spriggs, who is the person who accused Aaron Donald of the assault, uh, offered an apology to Aaron Donald on behalf of his client. And with a review of the, all of the available video footage from the nightclub and the surrounding businesses, it was discovered that Spriggs actually swung a bottle, a beer bottle, at Aaron Donald, who was able to duck out of the way, and the bottle kind of slightly grazed Aaron Donald's head. And there were some other people that were with Aaron Donald that jumped in, basically grabbed Aaron Donald, and it was one of the people that was with Aaron Donald that ended up punching Spriggs in the face. So it was not Aaron Donald that committed the assault. So um, it was somebody else who was coming in defense of Donald. So good news for Aaron Donald there. It sounds like he uh, he avoided any legal trouble and any uh, personal conduct trouble as well with the NFL. But who did not avoid legal trouble is defensive end Alden Smith. He has once again found himself in some legal hot water uh, with the NFL. Uh, Alden Smith... He just signed a one-year contract with the Seattle Seahawks about a week ago, okay? And in this past week, since he signed his one-year deal, he had an arrest warrant issued for him for a second-degree battery uh, that occurred on the evening of April 17th uh, at the French Press Coffee House in Chalmette, Louisiana. So Alden Smith ended up turning himself into the police. He was booked into jail and released. So... Now, if you remember, Alden Smith had been out of the league for five years, played with the Dallas Cowboys last year, and did not get re-signed by them. He did have a strong first few games, but kind of tapered off at the end of the season. So I guess the Cowboys knew what they were doing uh, when they did not re-sign him. And I just feel bad for this dude. I mean, I know he's he's ultimately responsible for his own actions, but, uh, you know, he really proved last year that he had kind of gotten his life turned around and then here we go in the offseason, signing with a new team, and he's back in legal trouble. So I don't know what this means. It would almost, he's, whether or not he gets prosecuted for the assault, uh, he almost certainly will be subject to a NFL personal conduct violation uh, suspension. So stay tuned for that because that is, uh, that is news for the Seahawks. Now, some other NFL news. The uh, NFL and the NFL Players Association, a, uh, they approved a position-specific helmet design for the first time since they began regulating equipment for the players. And the helmet was built for offensive and defensive linemen and is ranked number two on the league's uh, 2021 safety rankings. And what makes these safe is that the helmets are equipped with bumpers on their front and upper sides, which according to NFL engineering studies is where the common points of contact for linemen occur. And 
The NFL and the uh, Players Union have been ranking helmets based on proprietary safety data since 2015 using lab tests, and they began banning the lowest performing helmets in 2019. So the good news, though, is that the concussion rates for the NFL over the past three seasons, which is from 2018 to 2020, are 25% lower than the previous three seasons between 2015 and 2017. So that's good news. I would expect with the technology that we have now that there will be more of these uh, specialized helmets for uh, specific positions coming out, especially if these do well uh, in this season and in the studies that they do. But I mentioned a couple of episodes ago that the NFL was considering accepting a rule change regarding jersey numbers. Well, that rule change just passed this past week. So now running backs, wide receivers, tight ends, defensive backs, and linebackers can all wear uh, single-digit jersey numbers, which may not seem like a big deal, but a lot of these guys wear single digits in college and then have to change their number completely due to uh, this NFL rule that had existed. But there were also a couple other uh, notable rule changes that are going into effect this year. Uh, one of them is that there's going to be a one-year experiment this year uh, with regards to onside kicks, and the goal is to make it easier for teams to recover onside kicks. So with that, in this upcoming season uh, at the NFL, the receiving team on an onside kick will be limited to nine players within 25 yards of the ball, as opposed to your normal 11. Because last season, there were only three onside kick recoveries out of the 67 onside kick attempts. That's only 4% of recoveries. So I think that's good. You know, onside kicks are pretty exciting. Uh, They usually are at the end of the game uh, when the losing team is trying to come back. So uh, I would expect with that rule change that the 4% number from uh, last year would go up. But we'll have to stay tuned on that and see uh, if it gets to be a very high success rate, they may go back to how they did it with 11 guys on the line. But another rule is that overtime in the preseason games is now eliminated. Uh, Totally good with that one. Not really sure why we played overtime in a preseason game anyways. Um, I get get the point to keep the uh, integrity of the game, but let's be honest, you know, a lot of the preseason games, at least three of the four preseason games, well, there's only going to be three preseason games this this year moving forward with the 17-game schedule, but most preseason games uh, were, you know, rookies and guys trying to make the team. Uh, only one game, you know, usually do the starters start and play a full quarter or full half, so I'm good with that one. But the most important rule change deals with the replay officials uh, who sit in the press box. And these replay officials now have the authority to consult with referees on certain specific objective aspects of a play when clear and uh, obvious video evidence is present. So these replay officials are not going to be able to throw flags or reverse any calls on their own, but they can now offer referees advice based on what they've seen on broadcast replays uh, in the areas of possession, completed or intercepted passes, location of the ball relative to the boundary or the end line, and whether a play is down by contact. I think that's a great rule change. Uh, They're not giving the replay officials too much power. They're just simply allowing them to have more input uh, because they're the ones watching the replays. So if anybody can see that a call is right or wrong, it's the folks watching the replay. So 
I think it's pretty important. You know, the referee goes under the hood to look at the replay himself uh, for, you know, a few minutes. But if you have an extra set of eyes that can consult with the referee and uh, give his his or her input on what's happening, then uh, I certainly think the more eyes, the better. And again, that, that helps keep the integrity of the game and make sure that these calls, crucial as they are, uh, you know, are, are correctly called and, and not uh, the determining factor of a game. But we'll move over to the NBA real quick. Last week, we talked about how Alex Rodriguez co-purchased the Minnesota Timberwolves franchise with a billionaire business guy. Well, this week, it was announced that longtime Miami Heat guard Dwayne Wade has purchased an ownership stake in the Utah Jazz and he joins majority owner Ryan Smith in doing so. And Dwayne Wade came out and said that with this uh, joint ownership stake that he purchased, he plans on taking an active role in the franchise and the region uh, of Utah. So that's interesting. Uh, Dwayne Wade played for the Miami Heat his entire career. Uh, you know, I, I, he probably lives down there. I don't understand why he would take ownership in a team that's way out west, especially if he plans on having an active role and being present for a lot of those games. But, uh, you know, that's that's interesting, uh, just kind of noteworthy there. Uh, Dwayne Wade's obviously a Hall of Fame player, and uh, now he is part owner. But the final piece of news in Around the Island uh, is in the PGA Tour. And this past week, the USGA announced that a limited number of spectators will be permitted to attend both the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in San Diego and the Women's U.S. Open at the Olympic Club Golf Course in San Francisco, both of which are this June. And both of those are obviously in California. So to do so under the California uh, health and safety guidelines for COVID, the residents that attend the event, uh, residents of California, must provide a negative COVID test or proof of vaccination, and those from out of state must be fully vaccinated and at least 14 days clear of their second shot before attending the U.S. Open. And face coverings and social distancing are still going to be required for those in attendance. Now, I'm, I'm good with this. Uh, you know, fans at a major championship is an absolute must. It was just super weird last fall seeing the PGA Championship and the Masters in November being played without fans. And we've had fans back on the course this year uh, since we've turned the page a little bit. We just had some fans at the Masters for the first major of this season. And uh, it's awesome to see the fans. You know the players feed off of it. Uh, They love having fans. Any player you ask would definitely prefer fans over no fans. And uh, so I think, you know, once we get through this calendar year, I think all sports in general are going to open up to 100%, at least those that haven't done so already. Uh, But that's going to wrap up the 37th episode of the Sports Island Podcast. And as always, I appreciate you guys listening. This podcast is available on all major podcast platforms. You can rate and review and subscribe to it there. Uh, Be sure and tell all your sports-loving friends about it as well. Uh, You can also find the podcast on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. So again, I appreciate you guys listening. Next week, we'll have an NFL draft to recap and, of course, some more standings updates and some more major news from all the various sports. 
So in the meantime, stay safe, be well, and we'll catch you on Sports Island next week.